let them eat cake. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Hello and welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother David. And David, it has been a while. It's been a little bit, yeah. A few things have happened. Few things have happened. You can blame me for that. I went off and got married, so that's what we've been busy with for the last little bit. So sorry about that, but hopefully we'll be able to get back into the swing of it and get some more podcasts pumped out for everyone. I suppose we've got a chance to do that today anyway. No time like the present to go back and talk about history, right? All right, then let's get to it, David. I have to ask you the question that we always ask to start the podcast. It's in the title. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's February 6th, 1904. Admiral Togo, commanding the Japanese fleet, has summoned his senior officers together for a briefing on his flagship, the Mikasa. He begins, Gentlemen, we sail tomorrow, and our enemy flies the Russian flag. Then he outlines the audacious plan. The Russo-Japanese War will begin with a surprise attack on the headquarters of the Russian Pacific Fleet at Port Arthur. All right, David, stop me if I've heard this one before. A surprise attack from the Japanese in the Pacific Theater. We're before the one you're thinking of. This is 1904. So quite a ways before. But yes, there's a certain historical rhyme there between two very faint, well, one very famous Japanese surprise attack and this somewhat lesser known one. Of course, the other one is the attack on Pearl Harbor, which brought the Americans into the Second World War. But like you said, we're 1904, so well before the Second World War. So David, what are the Japanese up to here? Why are they attacking the Russians? This all comes back to colonialism. The Russians didn't get a big colonial empire like the British and the French carving up Africa. And around the turn of the 20th century, around 1900, they were sort of feeling, I don't know, maybe envious and looking to snag a few extra territories. And they conquered what is the modern region known as Manchuria, mostly in modern-day China, as a, you know, a random place on the map to seize and make Russian. But the Japanese were also looking to get into the empire game and conquer a few people, and they'd just conquered Korea at this point. And they'd been looking at Manchuria, and this brought the two empires into conflict, both of them accusing the other of moving too far, seizing territory in Manchuria that they were not responsible for or allowed to do. And so there was this long period of escalating tensions over the definition of this mostly unpopulated border, uh, not helped by the fact that The people who actually lived there were mostly nomads who would follow their flocks. So they would move across the border all the time, which made it hard to define who belonged to what nation. And so, as we've seen, 
the Japanese have decided to tidy up this issue by force. Well, David, colonialism certainly never caused any other problems. (laughs) Uh, If only that were true. Yeah, so when we're talking about historical precedents here and uh, problems over colonialism, Japanese surprise attacks, I'm seeing some common threads in this story already, David. So what is the plan for the surprise attack? So the plan for the actual surprise attack, which will go down on February the 8th because there's a day of travel time between the Japanese bases and Port Arthur, is actually cunning. They intend to sail to Port Arthur, which as a harbor is good as a protected base because it has a very narrow opening to the sea. But the Japanese intend to take advantage of that by sailing an old ship they don't want anymore into the center of the narrow channel out of which ships can exit and sinking it, blocking the entire Russian Pacific fleet into harbor where they won't be able to affect the rest of the war and letting the Japanese transfer their land forces over into Manchuria without any interruption. But of course, nothing's ever that simple. It sounds like a good plan to me, David. Just blockade them in, use their own strength against them. That's like a classic jujitsu move to turn what was a strength, this narrow harbor, into a weakness by blocking in their fleet. It's clever, but frankly, it's overcomplicated. The Japanese need to get this ship exactly into position because if it's too far into the harbor, it'll be too easy for the Russians to just move it, pull it out. But if it's too far out, then it won't actually block the channel and the Russian ships will be able to get out anyway. As it happens, the Japanese officer who's commanding this block ship sinks it slightly too early. So although it's a narrow, narrow passage, the Russian ships can still get out and the first effort to blockade Port Arthur fails. But Togo is not an incompetent commander. He was ready for something going wrong with the block ship. And his squadron nonetheless successfully implements a blockade of the harbor with more conventional guns and torpedoes kind of means. Okay, so it didn't quite work on the sinking the ship. I just would imagine that would be not an easy task to begin with, so I can't blame this captain too much for missing his mark, although it's not ideal for sure. But in the end, we basically accomplished what the Japanese wanted to accomplish, which is to set up this blockade, David. So now Togo's got his blockade. The Russian fleet is trapped. The Japanese army is transferred over into Manchuria and launches bold, rapid assaults, which are quickly overrunning much of Manchuria, but they're also outrunning the Japanese supply line. So the advance is falling apart, not so much because of the Russian defenses as the Japanese logistics running out. And at the other hand, at the harbor, the Russians have fortified it on the landward side, and 
the Japanese army just can't get in. They try everything, but they just can't break in. It's actually very, very similar to the soon upcoming World War I in terms of dense trench networks and machine guns just preventing any real forward movement for either side. Well, we know how that ends up working out in World War I, David. Four years of stalemate and two armies really never moving very far. Do the Japanese have a plan to try and get through this, to try and break through these Russian defenses? Well, the Japanese aren't getting into Port Arthur. But meanwhile, the Russian fleet is getting increasingly worried that if the Japanese get close enough, they'll just shell from land, from land-based artillery, sink all the Russian fleet. So the Russian fleet makes more and more efforts to break out of this narrow harbor in which they're increasingly trapped, and it whittles away at the Russian Pacific fleet. There's one or two real naval battles, but mostly it's just brutal skirmishes sinking one or two destroyers at a time. But the Japanese are winning. The Russian fleet is going down. And at the Russian capital of St. Petersburg, the Tsar knows that if he wants to stop this Japanese offensive using naval means, which he does, he's going to need a new plan and a new fleet to turn things around. I'm guessing that's not easy, David. How far is St. Petersburg from Manchuria? Russia's not a small country. Asia's not a small landmass. This has got to be quite the challenge to run a war that way in 1904. This is where a guy called Admiral Rajastvensky enters the story. He's one of the up-and-comers in the Russian fleet. And at this point, he's commanding the Baltic Squadron, which, as you may have guessed from the name, is in the Baltic Sea. He proposes that they take this squadron of mostly built-to-be-short-ranged ships, sail it around the world, rename it the 2nd Pacific Squadron, and use it to attack and defeat Togo and break the blockade of Port Arthur. Of course, the most important part of that plan, David, is renaming it so that everyone knows what ocean it's supposed to be in. It would be really confusing for historians if they'd kept the name of the Baltic Fleet the whole time. So actually, I'm pretty grateful for that little bit. Good work. But still quite the ambitious plan, David. As you point out, there's quite a difference between the Baltics and the Pacific Ocean. A fleet made for one, is it going to translate onto the other? Well, the first problem is getting there. And most of the Russian Navy believes that that's impossible. These ships don't have the range. They cannot sail there. It's too far, and everything's going to fall apart. But, Rajasvansky points out, you just have to refuel a bunch of times, and you can make it. So, with the Tsar back in the plan, they set sail. Morale in the fleet is low. Most of the sailors have already heard about all of the officers saying that it's impossible to even make it to the Pacific, let alone fight there. And 
none of them have signed up in what was a fairly peaceable time in European Russia to sail around the world and fight the Japanese over a conflict they mostly have no understanding or interest about. So the Russians have a bunch of boats not built for this, and they have a bunch of sailors who don't really want to do this. Are they even going to make it to the Pacific, David? It's a long way to the Pacific, Neil, and they're going to face many challenges. Their first challenge comes as they exit the Baltic, right at the very start of their voyage. There's a rumor going around that the Japanese have a secret group of torpedo boats that they've based in Britain, because Britain and Japan at this point were allies, sort of-ish, and there's rumor going around that there's a secret fleet of torpedo boats that are going to attack the Russian fleet as they pass Britain. The Russian fleet is passing Britain at a place called Dogger Bank. It's nighttime. They see a bunch of flashing lights and a few small, fairly fast boats. Someone panics, opens fire. The rest of the ships assume that he must have known something they didn't. They open fire. There's a confused night action. Guns blazing everywhere. Several of the small ships that the Russians have seen sink. Day breaks. Somebody notices that all of the small boats in the vicinity are flying British flags. There's a rush to the radio room to try and figure out what just happened. And the British Navy shows up spitting mad about the fact that a bunch of British fishing boats just got sunk at Dogger Bank. Not an illustrious start, to say the least. Now they've gone and pissed off the Brits. And David, at this point, the British Navy is one of the most powerful in the world. So there's no question that if the British Navy wanted to sink the 2nd Pacific Squadron in the English Channel, they could do it. But they don't, really. I mean, they're angry, obviously, but everybody agrees it was a dumb mistake, but a mistake. And the diplomats are working to sort it out, not the Navy. But the British Empire does have another trick up its sleeve. The original plan was that the fleet would go through the Suez Canal, which would allow them to not have to sail all the way around Africa in their voyage all the way around the world. But the Suez Canal at this point in time is British, and the British say no. The Russian fleet will not be going through the Suez Canal. They now have to sail all the way around Africa, which they didn't plan for, then all the way around Asia, and then fight their way to Manchuria through the Japanese fleet, breaking the blockade, allowing them to reach Port Arthur. David, do they have time for this? Aren't they worried that Port Arthur is going to be overrun long before they can ever sail all the way around Africa and Asia? It's certainly a factor driving them onwards. They don't know it, but Port Arthur, the more modern armaments have granted the advantage to the defense, which no one in Europe actually understands yet, including the Russians. But Port Arthur is actually holding out quite well. But they don't know it, and certainly 
for the officers of the fleet, this is driving them on, they need to reach Port Arthur before it falls, whenever that might happen. How does the rest of their trip go, David? Do they sink any more fishing ships? They don't. By the time they're getting just around the tip of Africa, they've come up with a new plan. One of the problems they have now is that their ships are getting coated in seaweed and gunk, which happens to ships that sail on the ocean for a long time, especially in the tropics, especially if your ships are built to sail in the Baltic, which is cold and doesn't have the same kind of stuff that will foul up a ship's hull. So they're planning to scrape the hulls clean at Madagascar, which at this point is under the control of the French Empire, and the French like the Russians, so they can stop there for a while. Trying to keep track of all my pre-World War I friendships and alliances, David. It's hard enough. I'll try and point it out when it's relevant. Thanks. If you can point it out when we get to 1914, that'd be helpful too. <laughs> so they arrive at Madagascar, but there's a mix-up. Nobody told the cooks that they're planning to do this hard underwater work. So the cooks dump overboard all the food that's gone bad on the voyage. And there's a fair amount, including a fair amount of meat. And they buy new food, obviously, at Madagascar. But when they dump the old food overboard, they attract all of the sharks in the area. So they can't clean off the hulls as planned because they don't have a lot of time because they feel like there's urgent need to be moving. And there's all these sharks in the water, so you can't send divers down to do work like cleaning the hull because they'd get eaten. David, for those of us who saw Jaws, that is a pretty terrifying thing to think that these guys were going to go into the water and then all of a sudden there's sharks because of the cooks dumping the food overboard. Donna, Donna, Donna. Anyway, so what do they do? So they're sailing now with ships that are substantially slower than they're supposed to be because their bottoms are all fouled and they haven't had a chance to scrape them off. But they just decide, whatever, it's fine. We can't stop now. Have to keep going. We're running low on coal because these are big steamships that need coal for fuel. So they keep moving. And amazingly, they make it all the way to Vietnam. Also French. French are still friendly. They stop at Camran Bay, which was the major French naval base in Vietnam. And later on, when the Americans take over from the French for a little bit, will be the major American naval base in South Vietnam. Not really relevant, just interesting. But they reach Camran Bay and start prepping, doing their final calling, and they're finally going to do the cleaning the bottom of the hulls thing that got delayed. And just generally, this is the final getting ready before the big showdown. Don't tell me something goes wrong here, too. So we got to start with William Donald. William Donald is an Australian journalist. He's doing the Vietnam, well, they called it Indochina at the time, beat for the Daily Telegraph. They send him a cable saying, we've heard rumors that the Russian fleet that everybody in England is talking about because it sank a bunch of English fishing boats for some reason is in Indochina. Go find it. 
And in theory, this is supposed to be a military secret, and the French are supposed to be keeping everybody from finding this fleet, but they don't stop William Donald, who sails right into Comron Bay on a civilian steamship looking for officers who are willing to do interviews. Well, that's a good intrepid journalist there, David, walking right into a state secret. The French have been keeping this a secret because they don't want to annoy the British, who are still not happy about this whole Russian fleet thing. And by keeping it a secret, and maybe we're doing it, maybe we're not, they were sort of having the best of both worlds and refueling the fleet and helping the Russians, but not annoying the British. But the local French leadership in Vietnam decides, nope, you have to move on. We're not going to be let you have all the time we thought we were going to let you stay because we're worried that will annoy the British too much. So you're only getting 24 hours. So that cleaning the bottom of the hulls thing, that's scrapped again. Colon, they're sort of not doing it properly. They're getting it done, but it's a rush job. Now there's coal just sort of stacked on top of the deck because they don't have time to properly put it in the coal bunkers where it belongs. So that's a mess. So you would think nothing else is going to go wrong here at Comron Bay, right? Well, David, I've heard you can have a pretty good 24 hours in Vietnam. <laughs> well, maybe Admiral Felkerzam did. Or maybe he just wasn't healthy. But he's the second in command, after Admiral Rajastvansky, of the Russian fleet. He has a stroke. Rajastvansky considers announcing this to the entire fleet and appropriately having the third in command take over as second in command. So that, you know, there will be a healthy second in command for the upcoming battle everyone expects. But then he remembers that he hates the guy who's the third in command of the Russian fleet, so screw that. And therefore, he just doesn't tell anyone else in the fleet about the fact that his second in command had a stroke and is not ready to command in the upcoming battle if anything goes wrong. Yeah, chain of command, usually a pretty big deal in military circles. That doesn't seem like a small oversight for a Navy to make. But I guess uh, that's how it goes when you hate the guy who's third in command. Now they've got two options. Sail north around Vietnam in a wide loop, which means that they are in the open sea and hard to find for the whole way to Port Arthur, but also means going a lot farther, which is hard for their ships to begin with, and with the fouling and with the improper colon from getting rushed out of Vietnam, they're not sure if they can make it. So the fleet officers decide to go with option two, sail straight down the Tsushima Straits between Japan and China. It's narrower water. The chance that the Japanese will be able to find them is a lot higher, but the distance is shorter. If they can move fast enough, maybe they can make it to Port Arthur before they're intercepted. David, it seems almost inconceivable that they've made it this far and I guess they wouldn't even know if Port Arthur's still Russian or if the Japanese have overrun it yet they do have radios that's very very early for radios 
but a few of the largest Russian battleships do have radios, which is a big deal, because although the Russians don't know it, they've been sending and receiving messages back to St. Petersburg from the radios. Brand new technology at the time, very exciting. It's too big, actually, to be fit onto some of the smaller ships. They don't create enough power to power these radios because they're big and bulky and massive at this point. But the Japanese have built special listening posts in Korea which are determining where these radio broadcasts are coming from to help them track the Russian fleet. And the Russians have no idea that that's even possible. Wow, so technology is starting to come into play here as we get into the start of the 20th century. But still, David, it does seem like they've made such a long journey. They've come so far. They're so close to getting to Port Arthur and rescuing the rest of the Russians there. But they're going to take the shortcut and they're going to go between Japan and China instead of going all the way out into the Pacific to get around Japan the long way. Exactly. It's a risk either way. They've got to judge between the risk of getting caught by the Japanese fleet in the relatively narrower waters or going the long way and just running out of fuel and not making it at all, which would be very embarrassing. They're taking a risk. And do the Japanese find out? And the Japanese find them. And here's where... All the struggles, all the efforts, sailing the second Pacific Squadron all the way around the world. And then they come face to face with the Japanese fleet still under Admiral Togo. And in approximately two hours, he sinks the entirety of the Russian second Pacific Squadron, every last ship to the bottom of the Tsushima Straits. And the defeat is so devastating for the Russians that they will actually sue for peace. And the American president at the time, Teddy Roosevelt, will run negotiations between Russia and Japan, which will lead to a peace treaty ending the war, which is widely considered to be a victory for the Japanese. David, they came so far. They got through so much so many problems but they made the wrong decision right at the end and ran right into the teeth of the Japanese did the radio stations end up playing a part in this David was it because of the Japanese listening in to the Russian radio signals back to St. Petersburg that they were able to find this fleet it's hard to say Neil everything ultimately depended on whether the Japanese could find the Russian fleet or not, whether this bit of innovative radio intelligence was what did it, or whether it was just good Japanese scouting by their destroyer captains doing very conventional naval tactics that Admiral Nelson would have been perfectly familiar with, searching for, or even the decision by the Russians to risk the strait, maybe they could have made it in the open Pacific Ocean even with radio intelligence. Everything adds up, everything plays a role, but ultimately, doesn't really matter. They got caught. That's what it comes down to. Fleet sinks, 
Russia loses the war. There's actually a Russian revolution in 1905 because the people are so upset about the fact that they got beaten by the Japanese and the government seems totally incompetent. It's a disaster for Russia that they will not have recovered from by the time that the First World War starts and the Russian Empire falls. Wow, David, quite the story. It had some foreshadowing of what was to come in the First World War with defensive weapons and trench warfare. It had some foreshadowing of what was to come in the Second World War with the Japanese surprise attack. And ultimately, David, I think it's a story that anyone who has taken a trip can empathize with. All of the difficulties of travel going halfway around the world, having to take the long route around Africa, running into different challenges as you go, did not end well this trip for the Russians. Okay, I don't know if every family's vacations feel like you're going halfway around the world, mostly because you made a stupid mistake at the start. But yes, I can empathize with the Russian 2nd Pacific Squadron and their odyssey. And even a little bit with the disaster at the end that comes with the fact that, ultimately, maybe it was a stupid plan to begin with. Yeah, don't take that shortcut. Never take the shortcut, eh, David? (laughs) Too many family vacations bringing back all those memories. Long road trips, huh? A little bit. There's always something to learn from history, David you enjoyed this episode make sure to like us subscribe on whatever your podcast app of choice is so that you can listen to future episodes we won't be so long to get the next one out to you so make sure you subscribe and we'll get that next episode to you a lot quicker and david i think if people liked this episode they might also like Uh, episode 34 the admiral and the ambush this is about uh, japan again naval warfare but goes a little differently for the japanese don't want to spoil it more than that so go give a listen to episode 34 the admiral and the ambush david we always like to end with a quiz are you up for a quiz today i could handle a quiz neil of course the big news in the world is covid19 the coronavirus causing trouble right around the world right now it is a global pandemic we hope everyone out there is staying safe taking care of yourself taking care of those around you and i thought maybe we'd have a little bit of history about pandemics today with our quiz david all right it's a simple quiz over or under i'm going to give you a number you tell me whether the answer is over or under that number for example first question Over or under 30, the average age of people who died in Canada and the U.S. during the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic was the average age over or under 30. If I recall correctly, the Spanish flu pandemic is infamous partially because it was so uh, lethal to relatively young adults as opposed to conventional pandemics, which mostly affect the elderly unfortunately so i'm gonna guess under even though it's a little counterintuitive you're right david it is under and you're absolutely right that the spanish flu was particularly 
bad for younger people. People 20 to 40 were particularly susceptible. And the reason for that remains a mystery to this day. All right, David, next question. Over or under five, the number of times the Black Death or the bubonic plague returned to England between 1348 and 1405? Under or over five times? At the height of the Middle Ages? I'd have to say over, Neil. You're right. It was over. It was six times between 1348 and 1405 that the Black Death ravaged England. Next question, over under five again, David. How many influenza pandemics have there been in the last 100 years? Influenza pandemics in the last 100 years. Ooh, over or under five. I'm, I honestly have no idea. I'll guess under. You're right, David. It is under. I'm cheating a little here. The first one will count the Spanish flu in 1918. I realize that's just a little over 100 years, but close enough. 102 years. So sue me. So 1918, 1957, 1968, and 2009 were the four influenza pandemics in the last 100 years. Next question, over or under 50%, the percentage of Constantinople's population killed by the initial plague of Justinian in the 6th century? It would really have to be under, wouldn't it? You're right. It was under, but amazingly, 40%, 40% of the population was killed by the plague. It's now been proven that it was, in fact, the bubonic plague. They called it the plague of Justinian, which... uh kind of sucks for Justinian. (laughs) A little bit. All right, David, last one for you here. Over or under 350, the number of people dancing for days without rest in France during the dancing plague of 1518. Well, if they, if it was significant enough that they named it, I'll guess over. You're right, David, about 400 people eventually succumbed to the so-called plague. Some died from heart attacks, strokes, exhaustion, It literally caused people to just get up and start dancing in the street. They don't know exactly what caused it. They think maybe it was food poisoning or some sort of mass hysteria. But 400 people dancing in the streets. David, you sure know your pandemics. (laughs) Thank you. Not sure if that's a good thing. Well, we hope everyone stays safe, stay inside, stay away from other people. And hopefully we'll all get through this together. Thanks for playing along, David. Always happy to, Neil. And thanks for listening. And wash your hands.